This is Fuse FM. An investigation has found that most leading universities, including the University of Manchester, do not have policies to support students whose attendance is impacted by poor mental health. The report, which was first seen in The Guardian, revealed that students with consistent absences can suffer academic sanctions. A university spokesperson said Manchester is committed to supporting the mental health and well-being of its students. The Indian Society of Manchester has published an open letter expressing disappointment and concern after student activists protested against the planned statue of Gandhi. Last week, student activists called on the council to reconsider its decision based on Gandhi's well-documented anti-black racism. Sarah Khan, who was leading the protests, said she had been abused because of her stance. Here she is now. On social media, particularly on Twitter, on my work account, I've received a really insane amount of Islamophobic hate and comments, which has been pretty difficult, to be honest. The nine-foot statue of Gandhi is set to be unveiled outside Manchester Cathedral in November. Universities must make progress in tackling racial harassment on campus, according to a report published last week. Universities Minister Chris Skidmore advised vice chancellors to create a zero-tolerance culture to all forms of harassment. And finally, plans to transform an unloved space into a 6.5-acre park in Manchester have been revealed. Mayfield Park will be the first public park in the city centre and is designed to be a relaxing nature spot and leisure zone near Piccadilly. That's all for now. You're in focus. And you are here with us for episode three of Fuse in Focus. Uh, anyone who's downstairs in the SU just listening will have noticed the very clear transition between the show when we went from some kind of house music into the three of us walking into the studio. Back to back, Abba, baby. That's I understand that Megan's downstairs, our, our news editor's downstairs. So if you are listening, Megan, hello. Hello, Megan. I'm sure you're very happy with what we've done in your absence. Yes, yeah, she's thinking it's 11.14. Where are my news team? Why, aren't Why they? are they playing back-to-back ever? <laughs> we were having a little boogie before it would get us in the mood to talk about racism on campus. Exactly. So, you are joining us if you've not heard the show before. This is a weekly show whereby we will have three stories. We talk for each of them about 10 minutes apiece in maybe a little bit more detail than you might otherwise get on a student news radio show. <laughs> It's all very good. It's all very exciting. Are we all excited for it? Yeah. I'm excited, yeah. That wasn't, well, that wasn't the level of enthusiasm people don't, I was People don't get for. excited about details anymore, James. We've had enough of experts, <laughs> yeah. haven't we? What do they want? Do they just want the headline? Yeah, they, they want, want the headline. And, and if they don't like it, then you're biased. Maybe over the course of the show, as we work through these stories, you know, we can sort of up the ante a little bit. We need to but, sex it up, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we could start by telling everyone our names. Yes. Um, I am James. I'm Josh. And I'm Conrad. And we are going to be your hosts for this week. Just before we get started, a little bit of news for everyone else. Uh, I did mention just before we went live, um, I went to get the Morrison's meal deal yesterday. (laughs) And yes, I'm going to talk about this. This is pressing (laughs) student news, everybody. I I have not got the Morrison's (laughs) meal deal before. (laughs) And I was very surprised by the quality of the meal deal. Like you, it's not like a, like, like you can get like the salad bar. And right. as much of the salad options as you can fit in <laughs> the container. And people are so just ruthless with it. Like, people yeah, are, like, filling it up way beyond capacity. And they're trying to, like, <laughs> like push the lid down and it's all just spilling out of the It's like sides. a harvester for hungry students. <laughs> <laughs> but it's brilliant. And that, to me, was my highlight So what, what do you get with the salad? 
Oh, it's loads of stuff, loads of stuff. Like, you've got your conventional salad options. Like, there's there's, there's, there's pastas. You've got, like, beans and stuff like that. There's It's not a sandwich. It's not like a typical uh, meal, dude. It's, it's like, like an a... actual, like, salad. It's a Amazing. salad bar. Right. But... The 50p goes a long way, I guess, doesn't it? The I extra think, 50p. I think the, uh, the, the sort of trick to it is to lay down a bed initially to fill as much like you know just stuff that's going to fill space like put down a lot of rice a lot of peas maybe some sweet corn and then you're going for the higher value items like that's where you go for the kofta balls and the meat right balls and so on to my next question <laughs> how much did this meal deal cost you and, and how might this relate to our first story so this meal deal cost 350 and the way mm. that this ties into our first story is because um, this week, no, sorry, this month earlier, um, student, sorry, Save the Student, uh, which is a student money saving website, put out their annual student money survey, letting us know how much, or rather, how little money students have. And uh, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to sort of take a look at it and look at the facts and figures and whatnot, but it turns out being a student is expensive. It's it's, it's very expensive. It's beeping expensive isn't it it's overwhelmingly expensive but just some figures that it cited um 79 of students worry about making ends meet um the annual sort of regular maintenance loan for most students in the uk um has a monthly shortfall of 267 pounds 62 percent of surveyed students says that the maintenance loan isn't big enough it's crazy guys why why don't students have more money what's what's this about well, according to save the student it's getting more expensive to go to university not because of tuition fees and because tuition fees have increased it's because living costs have gone up across the uk and these living costs are starting to outstrip the student loan basically meaning mm. that the price in living is is growing faster than the student loan is mm-hmm. yeah i think uh like by far the largest obviously the biggest uh cost was accommodation yeah which i think really does get more and more expensive every year doesn't it mm-hmm. and also um I, I mean it does apply to everyone but halls are just getting ridiculously expensive well we've talked it's about like, sort of shoddy uh halls on this program before haven't we and we have indeed and, i mean this is an issue that's been compounded in recent months because we've had reports of people get into university they come to a, a fresh new city and they're ready to start their studies and they find out that their accommodation that they've signed up for and paid some money towards isn't ready yet and these sort of private developers are running behind schedule and over budget and then when students come to move into their digs it's not there and they've been put in temporary accommodation and we're hearing these sorts of Mm. horror stories so it's an interesting point that if student accommodation is getting more expensive are we are we seeing value with that i mean there's student accommodation in manchester which i know you guys will probably agree with me isn't the nicest i was in oak house last year um <laughs> and anyone listening to this who's lived in oak house um or you know surrounding areas in that sort of fallowfield campus of the university of manchester will know that it's not the the, the greatest quality <laughs> can i say that I remember like um, going over to see your flat at the end of last year, <laughs> and like like on the way in, you were really, really like sort of warning me, you were like, "No, James, you don't. No, it is like a prison." I'm not joking. It is like a prison. <laughs> and what was your first impressions of the flat, James? It was wow. This is like a prison. <laughs> <laughs> Conrad, where did you stay in your first year? Uh, I actually stayed in pretty nice place. I was well, ah. oh, yeah, I splashed out a little bit. I got um, I was in Victoria. Uh, Victoria Halls, which is okay, yeah. which is like in the northeast corner of Victoria campus. It's kind of like right next to the hospital. Uh-huh. Um, it was a pretty good place, but it cost like 138 a week. Okay, which well that's not a huge amount nowadays, more than I think some people. Yeah, pay. I mean nowadays that seems pretty reasonable, but like four years ago when I started, it was kind of near the top end or like middling top end of the price spectrum, I think. 
but uh, I think it was pretty good for the money I got. For that is interesting. Money I so uh, as James has said, students now spend an average of £806.32 a month. Mm-hmm. What sort of things do students spend their money on? And are these things that can be avoidable? Like, are they spending it all on Sainsbury's or are they spending it on nights out? Can Are there things that students <laughs> can cut down on? Or does the university need to be doing more to support us? And, well, and do, th- th- do This is one of like the interesting things that I think the survey raised, because obviously they asked students, you know, if you are short on cash, like, you know, and you need to make some cutbacks, what's the first thing you sacrifice? And I think there's sort of like a maybe... turkey's at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think there's like a sort of um, pop culture image of a student as just people that just spend all of their money just going out, like that's all we really do. But um, the survey suggested the exact opposite. That, that's the first thing that students scale back on. Students are spending less and less time and less and less money going out and being students. And this, this is a really sort of studenty response to what you've just said, but is it fair that students have to scale back the fun activities that they do? Should students have to sort of, you know, not go out with their friends and not enjoy social activities because either university provided accommodation or dodgy landlords are charging them too much for where they live? Mm. No, I think since since time immemorial, that has been a young person's student experience to, to, to go out and just get a bit smashed and, <laughs> you know, move to an exciting new city and cut loose. Like, it, that that is just part of being this age, and that's so innate to our entire culture, even outside of students. And I don't think it's fair that students are increasingly expected to miss out on those central human experiences just because, you know, landlords want to hike the price of rent. Well, you know what the university will say. They'll say, we support our students 100%. We're there. We've got the advice service. We can help them with any money troubles they might be having here. Yeah. Conrad, what are your thoughts? Is the university doing enough to support students who might be struggling with money? Um, well, I, I'm not really aware of any services they provide, unfortunately. Or should they be doing more, do we think? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think you, you could always do more, I think, but... um. Even just the fact that you couldn't name a single service, I think, is evidence of the fact that they should probably be doing more. But I think services cost money, don't they? And if the university can sort of keep those services available for those who only when people reach out, it might be a bit easier for them than advertising them everywhere and then having to genuinely, you know, help people with money. Yeah, and as far as controversial view, if if the uni's got, I mean, this is getting a bit personal at Uni of Manchester, but if the uni does have millions of pounds to invest in fossil fuels, surely they can sling a bit of, you know, just think so, wouldn't you? A bit of aid at some of their students. Interesting. How many nights out to forty twos could you get with a with a with a fossil fuel (laughs) company investment? (laughs) You know what I mean? How much does the uni have invested, James? Uh, I think, is it is it 10 to 12 million, something to That's that That's a lot of nights on the dance floor, that. That is a lot of double vodka Red Bulls at 42s. <laughs> that is a lot. But I think as well, there's a question of some courses where you have to actually work as part of the, the course, so nursing, yeah. nursing students, stuff yeah. like that. They don't tend to get paid for the placements they put in. Um, their maintenance loans were, were scrapped a while ago. Um, and I think that we do make light of it, but there are certain courses where that bit of money would really come in handy to be able to do what they're doing. You know, they work a lot of hours and they do a lot of stuff for the local community and they don't mm-hmm. get, in my view, nearly enough credit for it. Yeah, it's kind of just crazy, isn't it? That, that like, so much of what immediately happens with students as well, like, when they do these placements or if they go on internships and things, you're expected to just work for free. Like, students need to meet the cost of living just the same as anyone else. It's crazy that, like, just because we're young and, I suppose, technically not yet qualified for our fields, mm. we're expected, like, yeah, no, just forego it. Just, just yeah, you, you don't need money for this work. 
Well, you know, people listening to this who maybe aren't students or are maybe about to graduate and go out into the big wide world, they're going to say, oh, these students, they're complaining. Wait till you get out there and you have to pay the full price of rent and you don't get your council tax exemption and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, what what can we say about the wider community and the sort of struggles they face after austerity? And uh, what can we say about people who might be struggling at the moment who aren't students? Is this a wider issue, do you think, Comrade? Um, well, I think there's... there. Is occasionally like hostility between town and gown kind of thing. Like interesting. People, That's a really interesting point. I, I, mm. I haven't really noticed it around here, but I mean, like, kind of the sensationalized media thing is like people, the general yeah, bloody students protesting against Gandhi. People, yeah, uh, yeah, students are like complaining and they they don't know how good they have it and they're just like really good point especially places like the sun in the mail you know if you read their leader <laughs> every three days it's like oh the students have done this again the students are at it again it's, it's true isn't it the thing that kind of really gets me about that is that um i think a lot of the people that express those views are people that have never been students mm. are people that have never like had a point of just like oh wait i don't have any money for the remainder of the month how am i gonna eat those sort of humbling student moments. It's really odd. It's really odd. Like, from my personal perspective as well, like, obviously I'm a postgrad student, and, like, the maintenance loan is non-existent for postgrads. Like, like you get, like, a loan, but your course fees have to come out of it. So I was, like, last year, like, the only person on my course who was able to, like, put myself through the course. Like, everyone else was either in a position where they were fortunate enough to have, like, parents help them out and fund them through it, or they were fortunate enough to, you know, just like have, have saved up a lot of money or have like inherited some money to fund themselves through it. And it's just really weird that like that's kind of increasingly the norm. And it, it's sort of like this kind of worrying state of like maybe privatizing education to people. Oh, we're going to come on to that in only, a second. Only to people that, you know, can afford to just go. Like it's becoming increasingly inaccessible for people from lower income and disadvantaged backgrounds. And it is a worrying trend. It's a really, really worrying trend. Shall we sort of move on to our next story that also touches on this sort of privatisation and marketisation of education a little bit? Should we, should we do that? Yeah, sure. Yes. Let's let's go for that. Do you want to uh, do you want to introduce that one for us, Josh? Yeah. So this is a story that's primarily about racism in campus, but it also touches on quite a few other issues that I think are going to be quite pertinent to our listenership and to students and to people that might listen to this show. Yeah. So Britain's Equality Watchdog has said that racial harassment is a common occurrence for many students um, in the country. They're saying that victims' grades and mental health are often suffering because of this sort of racial abuse they're getting on campus. Um, it doesn't really pinpoint, as far as I can see, who's responsible for the brunt of that um, racial abuse. But it does say, and I think this is a really key point, that many universities fear facing up to the issue and reporting these, um, you know, alleged incidents will harm their reputation Mm. um which i think is a a really really interesting point because we see nowadays almost a sort of tyranny of the league tables and we see that you know universities are sort of under so much pressure to do well and appeal to students because students are their you know primary source of revenue so if these things are happening on campus and universities aren't reporting them for fear of you know their reputation being affected what do students do where do students go to for help um is, mm. is sort of the reputation of universities a big issue nowadays would we say yeah massively so massively massively so i think a lot of um like you know in the age of say like if you google something even a university the first thing you get with the result is like reviews of it like reputation for educational establishments now matters arguably more than it ever has and so that kind of ties into like what what this problem is it's kind of cyclical is that like 
a student's, oh, sorry, a university's now less willing to address potentially um, deflammatory or inflammatory, whatever the word is I'm looking for, things about their own establishment because it damaged their reputation. Mm. Maybe that's what the problem here is. Comrade, what are your thoughts? Um, are uh, universities sort of at the whims of the, the tyranny of the league tables? Uh, I think they, yeah, definitely are because, I, you know, when people choose a university and then choose to pay £9,000 a year to go there, they, you know, I definitely did look at the league tables for different things, and then they're they are they're sorted by like student satisfaction and like all these different things. Um, I think one uh, one thing that seems a bit puzzling is that they wouldn't if they ignore these problems. Then I imagine the student satisfaction ratings would go down, and then they'd fall down the league table a little bit. But if I, I think maybe they that's why they mitigate it a little bit by trying to keep it. So it's a little Low bit down. sort of uh, damned if you do and damned if you don't, do you think? Mm. It, um, well, I think that they're, they're morally damned if they don't. <laughs> <laughs> and I then th- financially <laughs> damned if they do. Yeah, so. <laughs> you, can be, you can be brave or poor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you can divest £10 million from fossil fuels. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah I think s- somewhere, you know, some a very big, you know, universities with a lot of money should definitely be... This should be something that they they can tackle. They have the resources to tackle, and it should be their duty to look after their students. Things yeah. like. Well, I mean, I sort of um, I did a piece recently about EU students um, in Manchester, mm-hmm. um, and I was just trying to find out how they were feel, sort of feeling, sort of getting close to the deadline, um, and how they felt approaching October thirty first, and if they'd had their settled status and the sort of things they'd experienced on campus and all that sort of thing. And I found that a couple of students I spoke to said that sort of university itself, the, the campus, say um, for the Pub of Manchester, the almost sort of Oxford Road corridor or the bubble. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a very sort of open, inclusive, liberal place where, you know, everyone's very respectable and everyone's very kind. Um, but some of the students that I spoke to said they went out into the wider community. And then when they did that, that's when they started to experience sort of racism and they started to experience prejudice and discrimination and stuff like that. Mm. Um, which, I mean, the report doesn't really pinpoint where that comes from. But I think it's definitely a pertinent issue that a lot of people will relate to and a lot of people will think, well, I've, I've experienced that or I've, I've seen that happening. So I think, you know, maybe there is there is definitely something there, the Equality Watchdog saying it. Um, it's just how the university tackles that and keeps its reputation intact. And I think there's a lot um, as well in as much as, like, obviously, like, the overwhelming majority of racist incidents that happen on campus and elsewhere go completely unreported. Yeah. But people don't feel like they, they can sort of come forward if, you know, they have been a target of some abuse. Or that. And, and if that is the case, I do think that, you know, maybe universities need to hold their hands up and take a certain degree of accountability and say okay why is that that people don't feel comfortable coming forwards and what can we do to make this a more welcoming environment of people you know being able to say i've actually been racially abused in this regard mm-hmm. what yeah if you, sorry, the, uh, yeah i think when there is a problem the best thing to do is not ignore it, but to just be honest about it mm. and try to solve the problem. I mean, and you think students will think that university is telling it like it is? I like that. I'm y- go yeah, there. I think so. I mean, it might be a little off-putting if there's like really rampant, but I think it's. I don't know if how much variation there is between different universities, but I think if a, a single university is honest about it and then they make an effort to acknowledge the problem and tackle it, that will. I. Th- for me, that would count in their favour, and I think probably for yeah. other people too. Because I think it's probably a very unfortunate truth that anywhere in society you go, there's going to be 
racism and xenophobia in any level that you go to. And so I don't think that just ignoring the problem and hoping that it goes away really does anything. I think you're quite right, Conrad. Like, I think maybe the university should hold its hand up and say, you know what, this is, there is this problem, obviously, and this is how we're going to address it. And I don't know if, uh, if universities are doing that at the minute interesting there's a, there's a case study in this bbc article that i'm reading and it's about um, a jewish student and they said they'd been threatened um with some awful things that i won't say on the radio um and this happened during a protest event on campus so when we talk a little bit about sort of you know where these uh, race incidents occur and how sort of these things happen on campus are students almost encouraged to sort of join protest to speak their mind and to sort of not in a racist way but to sort of maybe push the boundary a little bit and say i believe in this i want to do this university is a place where voices can be tolerated so is there maybe a question of do, do sort of protest events and stuff like that maybe go a step too far sometimes do we need to sort of have a more codified set of rules in place for protests on campus and make sure that these sorts of things don't occur what was the protest for do you know it just says during a protest event on campus um and you know there's a there's a, there's a bunch of case studies in this piece about you know muslim students black students and all these sorts of things um and because it's hard to sort of know where these sort of incidents occur yeah um you know is is that a, 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 a symptom of universities being a sort of beacon of free speech and and almost you know you can you can say what you want in, in a lot of cases and should there be a more codified set of rules in, in play um well I, I think in the case of protests there's definitely like a heightened height like attention to yeah it, tensions so on high don't they you kind of there's kind of an electric atmosphere and you're kind of on edge to say whatever comes to your mind so I think there is a, you know, an increased risk of these kind of, yeah. you know, racist uh, insults as well. We talked about this about a little bit in the, the first episode, didn't we? When we were talking about the counter protest. So James, you went to a Remain protest, and you said that some <laughs> of the some of the guys on the Leave side they were, you know, sharing things like traitor and surrender. Yeah, and, they told and, me I was an anti-Semite. Exactly. <laughs> so it just goes to show that these sorts of slurs get thrown around, don't they, a lot? And and I mean, even you you showed no way of of saying anything like that and you just had that thrown at you for no reason whatsoever i know but i think when people go to protests like that they before they engage with you as a person they've already pre-engaged with this is an idea of who you are as a person so they're not sort of attacking you it's that it's they're just sort of attacking the idea of you mm. and i think that's probably like to a certain extent like maybe sort of the same I don't know, cyclical problem. People aren't really engaging with who people actually are. They're just engaging with this sort of affront that they've already taken to mm -hmm. a concept of who that person and is. I also, I think there's, yeah, it's like people come into protests with a bit of like a battle mentality. Like we have to stop the other side. So they kind of, they don't see a gray area in yeah, these protests. Yeah. And then just everyone who is outside is kind of they just have free reign to attack them basically so i think of that, that might also contribute to some of the you know racist attacks just because mm -hmm. they're on the outside very important issue that i think we'll definitely be returning to in the future yes um, there is definitely going to be you know a bit of a hint for you there might be a an article that touches on these sorts of issues in the investigation <laughs> section of the mancunian not too not too far so is that a little self-plug there josh <laughs> do, do, do you pick up uh, do you pick up issue six <laughs> or maybe issue seven i'm not sure which one it will be but yes let's move on so, um, Conrad, would you care to introduce our uh, third big story? Uh, yeah, it's um, it's not a specific event that's happened, but it was an article in The Guardian recently by Oliver Wainwright, the architecture correspondent. Um, He's an ooh. architecture correspondent. Well, that's amazing. Yeah. I want that I, job title. I that is beyond that cool. <laughs> no, I, I really love him. Um, 
and he's written <laughs> not not I don't really love him but I <laughs> this is great art <laughs> but uh <laughs> I just I love the image of him like you know when they used to send like John Simpson war correspondent uh-huh. he's there just outside a building like, he sort of, of he files his copy in sort of picture form <laughs> detailed portraits of skyscrapers <laughs> well, no, no I mean this article and like the <laughs> Stop laughing at Oliver Wainwright. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Oliver. No, if you, if, if, Oliver, is, if you are listening, please come on the show and tell us about your job. No, because <laughs> it is a really serious and um, like essential to the fabric of our cities. This how he reports. Um, so it's not just about how buildings look; it's about how they function and how you know how what their purpose is, the design of them. And so this article he wrote is about all the new recent developments in Manchester city centre. And it's pretty obvious when you go into the centre that there are cranes everywhere and like yes. skyscrapers yeah. just popping up out of every available like derelict car park kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, he, he's, he was talking about basically where the funding, where these, who's building these buildings and yes. by and large they're big multinational foreign uh, like Hong Kong investment banks head funds and things mm-hmm. that they have, they're investing in these new buildings in the center and um, the purpose of them is uh, well his gripe is that his his issue is that they're becoming like luxury apartment blocks and only Russian oligarchs can afford to live yeah. yeah and then so there was one statistic he quoted yes. where they're making like 13,000 or 1,300 new luxury apartment blocks. And like last year in Manchester, they built 28 council homes. So the question is why, you know, does the council have its priorities sorted? Are they lending out the space in the city and the, you know, the look of the city to rich overseas investors? Or are they looking after the people who live here and the people who need a home I think that is a big question this is a very big question and I do think that um, certainly within the past 10 years or so there's been a lot of gentrification within Manchester like it, it's increasingly wanting to appeal to like like you said like like these sort of like rich multinational investment bankers to come here the city's really really trying to construct an image of itself as being this like big shining utopia city of the London of the north the London of the north exactly but the problem is it's you know that's not um that isn't where Manchester has its history like Manchester has historically been this is a working class grassroots left-leaning city it's never been about these um you know these these huge multinational companies coming in and another figure because I read the article it cited um, the current pop- like homeless population of Manchester is more than 4,000. More than 4,000 people are on the streets within Greater Manchester, mm-hmm. I think it said. And it's just, it, it, it's mental, though, that like like any street you go on within Manchester, there's homeless people on it. And the city is not paying due attention to that problem. Even with Andy Burnham's sort of bed every night scheme and his sort of yeah, push at trying yeah. to, do you still think there needs to be a lot more that needs to be done in terms of housing? I think if there's literally thousands of people still on the streets, that's yeah. probably indication enough that more needs mm-hmm. to be done. Uh-huh. And um, I think what concerns these luxury apartment blocks, um, there's usually, like when councils allow investors to start building, they usually have limits to a certain percent of affordable housing in these blocks. And they're often very rarely met because they're less profitable 
to the investors. So they say, we don't want to build these affordable houses. Yeah. And the council just, the council basically just lets them because it's more money for the council. And then I guess the theory is they could put that extra money somewhere else, but their priority should be to get these houses built in the first place. Do we think that people are going to start getting fed up of seeing all these cranes in the sky when there are people in the poorer communities within Manchester that can't find a house to live in? Okay. You know, it's 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 almost a sort of torment, isn't it, to have all these sort of humongous building yeah. works going on yeah. when there's then no more council houses for people to live in. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of this and i think the people on the other end of the argument would say that this is about manchester sort of you know moving on to the next stage and being able to compete as a global city and as a global hub because as 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 much as manchester is sort of a a left-wing city and a protest city and a city of the working class i think it's also a a proud city that wants to continue moving on and continue going Mm -hmm. and continue starting to try to build that that that, 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 the sort of i mean even a lot of northern people would dispute the idea of the sort of the london of the north and there's a there's a a story there's a that andy burnham sort of tells a lot that um if you, if you go to London and you ask them what the second city is, they'll, they'll say Manchester. If you go to Birmingham and you ask them what the second city is, they'll say Birmingham. If you go to Manchester and ask them what the second city is, they'll say London. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think it's a, it's a really interesting uh-huh. point, and that would probably be the, the counter argument to that. Um, well, there was, I've done I've done some reading about this for a while. Uh, there was like a, in the nineties they started this whole regeneration program. Um, that, that's kind of when it all took off, I guess. New Labour, like 1997, mm. they started with this idea that in Manchester any investment is good investment into the city mm. because it, over yeah like over at the later half of the 20th century the city had run down and was in decline, kind of in pretty not so great areas, and they had the IRA, IRA bombing, um, so they were thinking as much investment as possible is has to be good for the city, mm. and by and large it was good, so they have. You know there are it's quite it's very nice in the center i think and mm-hmm. they have businesses trading and a lot of money comes in um and that i so the council people thought that's a good idea and it's continued to this day but you have this question which has basically been the central question for maybe the entire world for the mm-hmm. last 40 years yes is any investment from the very rich does that benefit the general population yes and you know, perhaps the answer is not necessarily or no, because the money doesn't yes. money doesn't trickle down. Because there, mm. there might be a, a lot more jobs in sort of catering and, and cleaning and sort of maintenance. But then mm-hmm. if those jobs are on zero hours contracts with, you know, that aren't paying a, a real living wage, is that really something that's going to benefit the, the masses of Manchester? In the, and I think even more than that, community. like, like you know, if these are like these crazy high, high end highly highly expensive flats it's not as if people that live and work in the city in bars and in catering and you know running their own like small independent businesses are going to be able to afford them. like like these flats aren't being built for the people of manchester they're not being built for the everyday people of manchester and their needs this is for mm-hmm. crazy expensive um Russian oligarchs and uh-huh. Hong Kong demagogues to come and just, just, just move into an exciting city. Can I can I mention a, a shocking statistic that I know? Oh, yes. Go on, go on, go on. In, yes, 19, in 1979, there were 6 million council homes in the UK, and today there are 2 million. And I was in Vienna last year, and they're really, they're, they've got their social democracy really sorted out. 
Vienna alone, a population of 1.9 million, the same as Manchester, has 500,000 council homes. That's which which accommodates like a third of the population there. Why don't we have that? I don't know. <laughs> so just one, one final question for uh, you, comrade, in your infinite wisdom. Does this investment show any sign of letting up? And does the council show any sign of changing its priorities, do we think? Or do we think this is going to be a long-term issue? The cranes are going to keep coming and the, the, the lack of council housing is going to sort of, you know, be consistent? Um, well, I th- depending on who's in charge in Whitehall and government, you know, that affects council's budgets. And then if councils don't get the money they need, they, you know, they need to get it from somewhere. And... So I think that is why they're quite happy to let any investment come into the city because they need the money. Um, so I don't know how that would change unless there is a radical shift in thinking either from the council to try and start these ground up operations and just generate the wealth from within the city somehow. Mm-hmm. Mm. Or if there's a change in government and you know these and uh, councils get more investment from taxes. And in this new um, skyscraper, you know, city, do people drive cars? <laughs> <laughs> what a segue, what a segue. I'm here all well, week, folks. Right, so um, what Josh has just made a uh, fleeting reference to, I think that will just about bring us to the end of our three big stories. Um, if anyone hasn't heard the show before, we like to just end with a little discussion. This of one's a, a tiny story of more ways than one. It's a little story uh, that we just found really funny and we wanted to talk about. Um, Josh. Could you tell us about the rats that are driving cars? <laughs> Scientists have reported that rats are being trained to drive t- tiny cars. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not doing I'm not doing I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And they also find it relaxing. <laughs> right, and this is the top line. This is the top line of this article. It's from AFP, right? <laughs> this is the top line. Sometimes life really can be a rat race. <laughs> right, so. Okay. This is yeah. my favourite news story of the year. <laughs> hands down, hands down. The US scientists have reportedly successfully trained a group of rodents to drive tiny cars <laughs> in exchange for bits of Fruit Loop cereal and found that learning the task lowered the levels of stress. The study not only demonstrates how sophisticated rat brains are, but could also one day help in developing non-pharmaceutical forms of treatment for mental illness. <laughs> So there you are then. This is this is the thing that really baffles me. The rats whenever, are driving the cars for uh, you people. Whenever whenever you hear stories about this, it's like, oh, a group of scientists have trained a group of rats to drive cars <laughs> to help research into mental illness. And it's, I just want one scientist to hold their hands up and say, you know what? No, we did it because it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> we taught rats to drive cars. And you, one of the largest <laughs> press agencies in the entire world, have picked it up. <laughs> Shame on you. I, I actually did read the paper. Um, you read the full paper. Yeah, I read the paper. It's not too long. Because you do genetics, don't you? So yeah. this is you can probably give us some insight into. <laughs> yeah. It. So um, the idea, the the article is a bit misleading. It's not actually entirely back. They do, do drive, not ruin they my dreams. Drive, drive, drive cars, but they're not checking. 
they're not, they're not looking if they enjoy driving cars. Is it automatic or manual? They, they so the fact that they drive cars is just a fact. Yeah, enjoy that's like it. Secondary. Okay, that's so just a funny side the effect. Re- the real thing they were looking at is how, um, like, the environment, when they're kept in a cage, if it's a fun environment, like, how how much they enjoy learning things and then the choice of them learning to drive a car was basically just <laughs> completely irrelevant so but it's just the best part is not only did they drive the car but they really enjoyed yeah. it which just makes it that much better for me yeah yeah they um there's some hormones that they checked and then they find that after they've driven the car some more they they're even happier than they were before. So. You, know, you know that feeling when a tiny rodent has passed your test before yeah. you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, there, is a, there is pretty funny... They have all these figures that they've drawn as well for the paper. And there's like a really funny one where they've tracked the movement of the car. And like the whole time they've been pointing, you know, the Fruit Loops in one direction. So the rat just has to turn around and go that one direction to get it. But then they move the Fruit Loop somewhere else. And then they have the little line tracing where he's gone. And he's turned around gone to where the Fruit Loop was. And then he like squiggles around the cage for ages. <laughs> and then at some point he like sees the fruit loop from the other side and drives straight towards it. So that's him learning to drive the car. And it's brilliant. There we that, are. that is absolute poetry. I love that. The, the, I love this story so much. <laughs> James, we're gonna we're gonna struggle to top that as a story. So, you know, maybe don't bother to do next week because it might be as funny <laughs> as that. Would you like to see us out and tell people how they can get involved if they I, would like I to be our interlocutor? I definitely will, Josh. Thank you. So um, if anyone has enjoyed this show, please, 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 um, if you've got any stories that you'd like us to discuss or if you'd love to come on and, uh, you know, sort of throw your hat in the ring, have a conversation with us, please get in touch. Um, If you go on Facebook and search Fuse FM News Presenters Group, I believe is the title of the group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, You can join it. You can send us a message. Anything you want to discuss, we're very, very open to. Um, and that just about brings us to the end of our show. If anybody does want to tune into this, uh, we'll be back here same time next week. Fuse FM, Friday mornings at 11. And we're also on Spotify now, which is very, very cool. You can listen back to our rap-based bunnies. Yeah. <laughs> you can. Oh, we've also got an Instagram. Please follow us at Fusing Focus, which is very, very cool. Uh, and all that is left to say is, I've been James. I've been Josh. And I've been Conrad. Good talk, guys. Thank you.